Cool. All right. Um, just for those of you who haven't haven't heard of you or don't follow you, could you just give a brief introduction about yourself? Absolutely. So, uh, by the way, thank you for having me on, Connor. I really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Matt Domney. I am the head coach at Compound Performance. Uh, I work with Kyle Dobbs uh, on Instagram at Compound Performance underscore. Uh, we do a lot of remote training and remote training education for other trainers and coaches. So I currently do all, uh, most of the remote training. I have another coach that works under me named Sam Eisenberg. His name is coach Sammy on Instagram. Um, we run a program called our group mentorship, which is centered around teaching coaches and trainers how to build a better business, either in remote or person. Um, and we actually just launched a new program specifically targeted at powerlifters called powerlifting evolved covering, uh, movement, biomechanics, uh, programming, periodization, fatigue management, and all sorts of things to uh, build better lifters and build better programs for uh, lifters. So I kind of wear a bunch of different hats here at Compound Performance. And then I also do full-time in-person coaching as well. So I do about 25 to 30 sessions a week in person um, because if I'm still and I don't do anything, that is when I start making bad decisions and get into trouble. So I try to keep myself as busy as possible to limit all of the bad decisions that I would like to make otherwise. I love it. I love it. So you're kind of like in all these different directions right now. And I did see that you guys are doing that uh, powerlifting thing. My question for you is I see a bunch of, there's a lot of powerlifting like specific stuff out there. So what mm. made you guys want to pursue that route? Uh, so what, what really got us starting to want to go through that is um, Kyle, Kyle runs individual mentorships through compound performance as well. And I started getting a lot of people to re uh, requesting individual mentorship with me for programming, periodization, and all sorts of stuff like that that I do with my current athletes and my lifters. And as I just said, like I do a bunch of in-person sessions a week and then all the other stuff that I have to do. I'm like, I literally just do not have any time to dedicate to doing like 20 Zoom calls a week with any remote clients or anybody else that I'd like to do this with. So why don't we just see if we can put it all together and just package it like we did with the group mentorship and just make it like a two to three hour a week time commitment, which makes everybody's life a little bit easier. People can answer more questions. And we have a lot more people that can contribute to it over just sitting, on, sitting down one-on-one -on -one and talking to me. Um, obviously it loses its individuality a little bit, but the principles that we try to apply to all of these, the, to the lessons that we're going will be the good, a good enough principles that most people can take good stuff out of it and really kind of get some, get some new information out of it that should hopefully um, change the way that they look at programming and periodization. And another thing that made me want to do it is I do a lot of um, accessory selection training or coaching with a, a couple other power lifters. Mm. And the, when I was starting to do this back in like January before the, the whole coronavirus shutdown, the programs that I would just get, oh my, like the, it was just like abysmal. It was like people would come in and be like, well, my, my back hurts. And it's like, okay, cool. Let me see what your program looks like. And there's like seven sets of snatch grip deadlifts and then four sets of conventional deadlifts. And then the next day they do RDLs and block pulls. And then two days later, they do like low bar squats, RDLs and good mornings. And I'm like, yeah, you're doing 22 sets of heavy hinging a week. Like that's, I'm not surprised that this is feeling like this. So if we just cut down that volume and I started seeing that stuff frequently enough that I was like, okay, we got to do something and we got to do something that we can, we can like bring something out there that we can work on hopefully changing this with other people. So people can understand how to, how to apply stimulus to lifters a little bit more efficiently. Mm -hmm. I got you. Yeah. Cause like when it comes to powerlifting, there's always those three lifts. Right. And it's like, how much variance can you really have in terms of programming? Like obviously it exists, but when I feel like the real, individuality and the real way to separate yourself is with the accessory selection. So right. if you wouldn't mind, just like what's your kind of thought process behind the accessory selection aspect of things? So 
when I, when I build accessories for a training program, and this is actually something I was talking about on one of our calls today. I like to try to keep all of my specificity based movements as specific as humanly possible in terms of movement of gross movement strategy and pattern, right? So if we have somebody who really hinges a low bar back squat to complete a movement, and this is the best strategy that they can use to complete the heaviest load possible, that's great. And I'm not going to necessarily try to change that unless it's causing them to not recover as well for other sessions. But what I'm going to do even before looking at changing that is look at selecting better exercises and better accessories and placing these exercises in the correct spot or the correct slots during the week to allow them to optimally recover in between each session so they can express maximal output per session in each of the tissues that we're looking to train, right? So the, exa the example that I gave of like a super hingy squat like the exercise selection that we're going to look at doing is going to be not necessarily things that are going to continuously build up those exact tissues because they're going to do that more than one time a week. And they're also going to have to deadlift as well, which as we all know, who's like people who are, who are like more versed in the squattier squat versus hingier um, hinge methodology of thinking or like train of thought, we'll all know that we can just do another hinge and build up that same tissue quality. And we don't have to do more other kind of uh, other kind of work that replicates that squat pattern. So I would rather have people pick uh, pick things that are going to train tissues that they're not training normally in different ranges of motion uh, that they don't get in a in a regular competition squat. So like if we're looking at a competition squat, we're probably going to be training more of like the shortened position of the spinal erectors, lats. Uh, more of the lengthened position of the glutes and more of the mid-range position of the quads. So what we need to do is we need to bias exercises that are going to train other positions of that. So lengthened positioning of the lats, shortened position of the glutes, lengthened or shortened position of the quads because we're not hitting those in the competition movements. Because what this should end up helping to do is help to help to bolster up a little bit more structural integrity in those movements, put on a little bit more mass and drive a little bit more uh, volume in the other exercises so they can continuously drive more output, but more output from a, an area where they're going to be fresher. Um, because it's one of those things that if we look at like, uh, like Moxie data, what we're going to look at is if we're continuously training the same uh, muscle mass and the same tissue and the same pattern, we reach a point of point of oxygen saturation pretty quickly. And then force output is going to decrease tremendously. So if we're starting to train other ranges of motion and other lengths, we may actually be able to drive output up a little bit more because we're, we're going to utilize different tissue in different range of motion that may have more oxygen capacity and maybe it'll drive a little bit more work. That's awesome. I love how you brought the moxie into that. Do you guys have one of those? We get? actually don't have one of those, but we we uh, we talk to Aaron Davis pretty frequently, so we get to see a lot of the stuff that he does um, with it, and it's super cool. And I want to get one. I just can't justify dropping the price on it yet, dropping the money on it yet. Yeah, what are they like a thousand bucks or something like that? They're like two grand. Two grand. <laughs> They're like two grand. Yeah. Oh okay. Uh, yeah, I think the moxie thing is fascinating because you can use it for almost any different kind of athlete. Right. Uh, and I took Evan Pikin's course and it was just mind-blowingly amazing. I think one of the coolest things I learned from that course, uh, just with people that I work with, you know, like General Pop, a couple of athletes here and there, but uh, ultimately it was just when you see a tissue that has been previously injured or, you know, like that, let's say biomechanically, they're all clear. Uh, what was really cool to me is that they put a moxie, let's say like for an example he gave me was, a, a, I think it was a patellar injury they came back from pretty significant, mm -hmm. uh, patellar something, I can't remember. But anyway, they, did, they put a moxie on the left quad and the right quad. 
And they put them in an isometric split squat lunge position. And what they did was they just said, okay, I want you to hold this position and I want you to do it for X amount of time. So even when the left leg, which was the injured leg that, is, that had passed the biomechanical assessments, when it was behind, so when it wasn't the lead leg, it was still going into a higher degree of occlusion than the right leg when it was the one that was behind. So that just goes to show that the blood flow hadn't been cleared enough and it wasn't necessarily a biomechanical issue that was still causing this person issues. It was a blood flow thing, but how often do we recognize that? I don't know. There's just a lot of different ways you can take it, you know? Right. And that's one of those things too. It's like without having a moxie unit, how would you even know that that's an issue? You'd never know. Right. You'd never know that that's an issue. And that's why we like to, I like to look at this through a lens of just looking at the position of the body and how physics is going to apply force to those tissues to then determine what we can do because we can make our best guess on what's going to be applying force and what how tissue is going to be responding to the force that's being applied based off of the position and load vector that somebody's uh, that somebody's using, right? So it's again, it's like if we talk about like a safety bar squat, we know that the load vector is going to be relatively vertical and the position is going to be more of a retracted rib cage, more of a stacked pelvis. They're probably going to get a little bit more anterior knee translation. So we can make a best guess on what tissue they're going to be biasing a little bit more, or utilizing a little bit more during that movement without the moxie unit. And again, if we had a MOXIE unit, that'd be so much better because we could figure out exactly what's going on. But without that, we have to do, like, like as coaches, we have to make a lot of inferences and make best guesses out of this. And what we can do is, like I was talking about, is keeping variability work as varied as possible yeah. to allow us to really stack the cards in our favor or stack the deck in our favor to make sure that lifters are doing what we want them to and expressing the qualities that we want them to express. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think essentially it's just like filling in the gaps, right? right? Ultimately, that's what this stuff comes down to. It's just like, give them what they don't have and give them it enough so that, you know, you don't give it too much of them because the answer is always, you know, enough. Right. Uh, so if you're giving them just enough that they need and they can spend those other resources they have in their body to dedicate towards improving their actual performance, I think that's what's very important. Uh, I get a question very frequently of like when you're working with an athlete in season or when you're working with, you know, a powerlifter in general, like, do you want them to come back to neutral? It's just like, absolutely not. Yeah. Because if you did that, you would take them out of the pattern that makes them very successful. So why would we want to take all of that away and spend all of those time and resources doing all this stuff that isn't even necessary and it's going to make them a worse athlete? Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like we need to we need to always look at it from a lens of athlete first, and sport specificity is going to be king. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the differences where if you're training general population clients, none of that shit matters. Uh, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast or not. No, you're good. But, you're good. <laughs> but if you're looking at like training an athlete, like we need to leverage those positions as well as we possibly can. And we need to do whatever we, and if we're, if we're taking those positions away from those athletes as coaches, that's like bordering in my opinion on like, like, like an unethical thing to do because you're just starting to create worse athletes mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, that's cool. Like it looks prettier, but your output is down by 30%. So it's not actually going to be a better movement for you to do because we're not leveraging this ability properly. And like, that's one of the, one of the things that like I see, like I see often, which is unfortunate is that like people, like a lot of people get so kind of caught up in this idealistic movement, um, like, like paradigm where if it's not a perfectly squatty squat, then I'm not going to do it when it's like, okay, well, what, what is your goal? If your goal is to squat as much weight as possible, you're going to have to make some sacrifices and that's okay. It's not going to look perfect and pretty all the time, but you're going to progressively get better all the time because the body is just going to adapt to the demands that you're placing on it. Right, right. Yeah, that's, a, that's something I go back and forth with in, in my own head. And I was actually messaging Kyle about this. And it's just like, how much does 
you know, all this stuff we really care about really matter. And I think yeah. like, he, he talks about this too. It's like, how much difference is it really making? How much is it really improving? And I can anecdotally say in the right context, it makes a pretty tremendous difference. But when you're talking about other populations, I think things start to get lost. Like I, my buddy, Jack Anderson, who's working with some pretty, he works at P3 down in Santa Barbara mm -hmm. with some NBA players. And it's just like a lot of this, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, a lot of like the sensory motor stuff, a lot of this like positioning stuff, you know, like doing a toes elevated single leg deadlift, stuff like that. Like, I think, yeah, I can have some value, but athletes don't like it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, athletes need load. So I think there's an expectation also on the part of the athlete of like, you know, I'm here to deadlift and squat. I'm not here to do a toes elevated single leg deadlift, for example. So there's also the question, which we don't have the answer to, as at what intensity do those positions start to not actually work because they're just going to leverage the strategy that they like to use in order to lift that heavy load. Right. So I think those things have value, in my opinion, for filling in those gaps later down the line and, and in a warm-up setting or whatever, a recovery session. But I think ultimately, I think there's it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking these things should be, you know, like even secondary exercises if that makes sense yeah and like that's one of the things that we like the way that, that we kind of classify uh movement is we we talk about like sensory motor stuff we talk about capacity exercises and we talk about uh output driven exercises towards the end right so it's a spectrum and it's a, it's a slider that goes from like from very very variable to not variable at all where we're looking at like expressing a high degree of variability in sensory motor movements where you're looking at just looking at creating a cognitive reference point in tissue that you don't normally train so that you can maybe potentially have a better reference point to use it in capacity training down the line to, and then like when we move to capacity training after sensory motor stuff, this is where we're looking at trying to reinforce position as much as we possibly can to just bias those exercises and bias the tissue that we're looking to train. But the way that we want to do it is we still want to make sure that we're trying to do it in a way that we're maximizing the output in that exercise, right? Mm -hmm. So like my opinion with this is like, I still want to make sure that we're, we're choosing the right constraints that are going to allow for maximal output with this. And like, sometimes that may end up being like, instead of a squat, that may end up being like a hack squat. That may end up being a leg press. That may end up being a pendulum squat mm -hmm. because what we can do with that. And this is something that uh, like, if we look at a lot of the, the different studies talking about intra rep variants of movement between sets, all of those are going to be on relatively fixed or uh, relatively unfixed and free weighted um, exercises like barbell squatting, bench pressing, deadlifting. But if we are able to control the range of motion and fix things and have things fixed in space, we may be able to limit that a little bit more, which might bias a little bit more output in the tissues that we're looking at training. So it's yeah. like one of those things where like, like instead of a toe elevated, like single leg RDL, we could just kickstand it, put a band around their hips and have them do like a, like a band resisted hip extension, single leg deadlift, where they may drive a little bit more output, feel a little bit better, and then not necessarily get whole, like it, like so stuck backwards in the other position where they, they feel like they're not progressing, even though they may be progressing, it's just choosing a different exercise that allows them to express a slightly higher degree of output for client adherence. And like, that's another huge huge uh, stone that we've got to talk about is like, is just client adherence in general. It's like, it's like you just said, if their athlete doesn't like the stuff that you're doing, right. they're not going to do it. And they're going to just find another time. And they're going to do the stuff. They're going to do all of the stuff that you don't want them to do at the same time in the same session, because they're they're That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. So there, yeah, it is a double-edged sword in that right. regard. And I think 
I think that example, could you give me a rundown of that example that you use just so people can process that? The idea of like, right. so instead of a, instead of a toes up, single leg, toe elevated deadlift, what would be your alternative? In that? So what I was looking at right there is the, 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 the thing that I was thinking about, I might, instead of having them do a toes up single leg uh, deadlift, because what we're looking at doing is if we're looking at creating a bunch of like stability for output, right? What we have there is a reference point to the floor is we have the heel. And that's pretty much it. The toe is on a plate or the toe is on a wedge or whatever it's going to be. It's not going to be quite as stable because the ground contact is not as even, right? So what we're looking at doing is while, yes, that may posteriorly translate the center of mass a little bit more, make it easier for them to uh, posteriorly translate a pelvis and horizontally displace a pelvis into a, into a deadlift position. What we could also do is we could also just kickstand that back foot and have them sit, uh, have them sit on the, the ball of the foot of that back foot, but also band around the waist and have the band pulling them back into back horizontally in space as well. So what we could do with that is we may actually, because of this position, drive higher, drive higher output because it's a more stable exercise, right? Where they're not necessarily, like feeling more sensation in the calf, they're creating better dorsiflexion by letting the band push, make them incline their torso forward, right? So mm -hmm. we're just picking a better exercise that allows them to use the band as a reference point to posteriorly shift the pelvis and posteriorly translate a pelvis. So they still get that same hip hinge, but now at the top, they also have an additional force vector to overcome, which is the horizontal resistance of the band. So they now get greater hip extension. They now get a little bit of a uh, little bit more work in the hamstrings at the shortened position because they're extending into the band and they're still lifting that load vertically. So we now have two force vectors going, one going horizontally and one going vertically, as opposed to having one force vector going just vertically, which may produce a little higher output and give them a little bit more total work done and train positions of the tissue that we actually want to train a little bit more. Because that's one of the things that I look at with a heel reference or with a toe reference in this, like I love uh, like heel, uh, heel elevated squats. And I think that's a great exercise, but I, I, I lose it. And I don't really see the, the benefit of the toe elevation on a hinge because what that doesn't necessarily do is it doesn't influence the position of the thorax and the rib cage. Mm. Right. Because what's going to happen is like the load, because of the load vector being vertical, right? You still lean forward. And as you stand up, you can still just anteriorly tilt the pelvis and extend through the thoracic, the, the lumbar and thoracic spine to finish the exercise and not actually reach anterior translation or anterior travel of a pelvis, right? So the pelvis may never posteriorly tuck and drive forward in space, creating a glute contraction. But we, and your argument is through the use of the band, that would be an easier reference for them to do it. Right, because they have they have a reference that's fighting them the entire time. So it's just like it's just like basic R and T training where you're kind of like feeding the 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 thing that you want to correct, where they get the they get the band pulling around the hip. So they now actually have to extend a hip into the band, which is going to force them to drive the pelvis under the thorax, as opposed to the opposite way, where if the toe elevation uh, is uh, is occurring in the deadlift, they still have the opportunity to windmill a thorax over a pelvis. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why I'm looking at this is like, what could we do in terms of exercise selection to maybe pick a better movement that'll allow them to pick a, a, like express the exact same qualities that you're looking for as a coach, but still have a higher degree of output and train the tissues that we're looking to train. I like that. I like that. Now, uh, where my mind goes is a couple of directions with this. I think you made a very good point with the output uh, aspect of things. Now, um, when you have a single leg variation of that, let's mm -hmm. say you're doing a staggered stance, for example, and you have an individual, like, let's say they're, they're relatively weaker and you want them to, because when, 
for example, when you have someone who doesn't have the competency and the pattern, um, you want to you want to add references, but you also mm -hmm. want to make things easier on them. Right. So in, in, I think for an output, I think I could see a lot of value in that. But uh, for example, if I had a band, band around, my around my waist and I was doing a hinge, for example, in that position, um, honestly, I've never done that. So I don't, I can't visualize it entirely, but I would imagine that that would be an awkward pull on my hips if I was in a staggered stance position. Do you know Pot what I mean? Potentially. I mean, but that's one of those things where it's like the, the band doesn't have to be very heavy. Yeah. It has to be enough. Right. So mm -hmm. like if, if we're looking at this in terms of, of like just band resistance, like that's not the variable that I'm looking to progress. The mm -hmm. band, the band reference that I'm is, is just a, a variable or a tool that exists to passively teach the movement and allow for like autonomous completion of the exercise without me having to sit there and reposition them and tell them what to do. Yeah. So it's like if the band is pulling back with 10 pounds of resistance, that's all it nearly needs to do. Like you can use a light mini band with that one and you'll still get probably the same degree of cognitive reference because you still have something pulling back against you and still potentially drive a little bit of higher output because you're now going to allow the pelvis to shift under the thorax as opposed to windmilling the thorax over the pelvis. Mm -hmm. I got you. I got you. Yeah. I think the, the loading references also assist with this. Like, for example, if you had a same side load with the toe elevated, I find that also helps people hinge and it also allows them to complete the movement because in that instance, they're better able to pivot around that back hip mm -hmm. because the load is pulling them in there. So, I mean, ultimately, I think there's a lot of different ways you can do this, but I actually really like that as a way to drive more output. And I, that's that's pretty good. And I and I, if you don't mind, I'd love to stay on this. I think people will- Yeah, go for it. Honest. Yeah. So um, that would be in the, in the model I use, the toe elevation, that would be an example of mid stance, for example, right. mid stance bias to get the vertical uh, tibia angle, shin angle. And then for example, let's say, let's go to, let's go to late stance, rear foot elevated position. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on using that as to bias more weight onto the forefoot and then get those mechanics as well as kind of like that um, concentric internal to external rotation? um, transition and also finishing point. So I think that's, that's, that's one of the things that like you, you, I actually saw you made a post about this a little while ago about just shin angle mattering to, to bias the tissue and bias the stance of gait that you're looking at, uh, at training. And I think that's really all it comes down to is like, if we're looking at just like choosing foot positions that are going to allow the shin angle to show where we are in the phase of gait. Like if you have a longer stance in your lunge, your shin angle is going to be a little bit more vertical, right? And that's just going to be that earlier or very late stance of, of gait, where if we're in a little bit more of a mid stance and a shorter stance, then we have a lot more anterior knee translation with a negative shin angle, we now get that mid stance, right? So it's one of those things where we can change that and change the range of motion that we're doing or change the phase of gait that we're trying to train just by lengthening or shortening the stance a little bit more. Yeah. I and love that. It's super that easy. Yeah. It's super easy. And like, that's one of those things is like, like I, I've, and I fall, I fell into this trap for like, like I've, I've been a coach since I was uh, like, since I was like 20, 22 years old. Right. So I've been, a, I've been doing this for like, like eight years now. And I fall into that trap so many times where I just try to make things more complicated. And then like, all the time, like every single time I try to do all this, like I try to do all this stuff. I'm like, okay, well, why don't we just do some lunges instead? And it's like the same thing. It's like, well, why don't we just do a long stance lunge versus a short stance lunge? Cause it changes the bias of the tissue that we're looking at training where like a longer stance lunge may, may have a little bit more external rotation and abduction of a hip because of the phase of gait that it's training. And the fact that the shin angle is a little bit more uh, vertical, but you're also going to feel a tremendous amount more glutes in that exercise just because the shin angle is vertical. 
right? Mm-hmm. So we're now getting a little bit more of a stretch in the, in the, like a lengthening effect of the, of the glute fibers, as opposed to more of a lengthening effect of the quad fibers, right? So it's just depending on like, like what exercise we're looking at doing and why we're looking at training it. I, f- I feel like a lot of what we can get rid of is like the only reason that we would, I would even keep like heel references in or like heel elevation in is just if I wanted to bias even more quad training, right? And if I wanted to bias even more of a mid stance uh, phase of gait, because we can super hard, like drive those knees forward and get a ton more work done in that and get a little bit more, like, like a little bit less glute work just because of the range of motion that we're going through and we're just driving the knee a little bit more and making that the true axis of rotation. And like, that's just one of those things that I think like, it just like choosing exercises that suit the goal of what you're looking for are super important and understanding it from a perspective of like, okay, what are the angles that we're looking to hit? What are the shapes that we're looking to make? And what are the tissues we're looking to leverage is a hugely important thing because it simplifies the process tremendously. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Something I'm trying to do within my own biomechanics program is make it sort of along the lines of what you just said there, because there is, there does happen to be this sort of natural progression that coaches go through where it's like, they learn about all this positional stuff and it's really fun and exciting. Yeah. And then you get into it and you're like, Oh man. Cause I mean, this is me, you know, I'm going through this right now. Yeah. And it's just like, this is awesome. And you're all about it. And then you get to the point where it's like, this is a lot yeah. and exactly what you said and i think you're sort of at the end of that transition of like well then you just make things more simple and i love that idea of just you know making things a longer or shorter stride depending on the position of the shin angle so i think it's important to make things easy to understand but also understand the intricacies intricacies of why you're choosing the things you're choosing and that's a very important point yeah that's a very important point it's like you to like it's it's like a it's like a bell curve right it's it's like not like it's like training knowledge and things like this kind of or like biomechanics knowledge and human movement knowledge kind of operates on this bell curve where at the very end of the spectrum on the like the stupid end you have oh bro just show up and train hard and go really hard yeah and yeah. then you have all the stuff in the middle where like everybody like everybody kind of falls in the middle where it's like well we could do all these things that might do all this and might do this and we need to worry about shoulder rotation and do all of this stuff and then on the other end of that spectrum as you get through that 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 curve as you get through it, you're like oh just go train hard and just pick better exercises where it's like you like it's it, the the either end of the bell the bell curve ends up being the exact same thing but the understanding of movement and principles of of, of movement are so totally different on either end of the spectrum mm-hmm. that like you have to go through the whole the whole thing to get to the other end yeah yeah right Definitely. it's like it's Definitely. exactly like you're saying with your biomechanics course it's like you go through like like and like, this is the same thing that happened with me when I first started too. And you said the same things going through, like you're going mm-hmm. through with, with you too. It's like, I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to feel all the feels. I'm going to do everything <laughs> is going to be the most perfect like thing possible. Yeah. And then I found that all of my output went down mm-hmm. and it's like, well, okay. Well, like for me, that's not relevant to my goal. So now how can I leverage the things that I've learned to increase those things and maximize what I'm looking at doing yes. and not just get stuck in the land of, consistent uh, not get stuck in the land of better and get stuck in the land of like progression yes because that's a better land to be in than better because better is ne- is not an end point mm-hmm. i love that quote i'm probably going to use that as the, the podcast preview thing right there <laughs> works for me man oh <laughs> uh, that's i this is a i'm loving this conversation by the way so that's an important thing like if anyone's listening to this it's just like 
at the end of the day, you still got to drive a stimulus and that stimulus has to be enough to cause an adaptation. Right. And with all this, all of these things that I like to talk about, I think they're important and I find an immense value in them for the population that I work with. But at the end of the day, you got to understand the population that you're working with. I think this goes back to what you said about the client adherence side of yeah. things, because you're going to have people that come in and most people don't have this, a lot of the same clients I have. A lot of people are going to have your general pop that comes into a gym and they're expecting a workout. So if you just give them a drill on the ground and that's what it is for 10 minutes and then you get them up and you're like, how do I do all this weird shit? Then it's that's not meeting the expectation that person has coming in. So right. I think you can feed them these things in small doses, but ultimately like people have been doing exercise. People have been training for without issues for a very long time, way before this stuff was introduced. Yeah. And as soon as I realized that I was like, Oh, you know, that's, that's probably why people who have been doing this for 25 years make things ridiculously simple. And like, that's one of those, one of those things is like, I fully, fully, fully agree that you have to understand the population that you're working with. Right. And the tools that like all the, the tools that I've kind of gotten through and I've, I've learned and I've tried to take, I try to keep those all in the back pocket in case things go poorly. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what I, that's what I look at this as is like, if we can't fix a lot of your issues with just fatigue management, better exercise selection and like better positional awareness and for, and like being respectful of the force vectors that we're looking at training, then we're going to pull this stuff out and see if this works. Right. Because like, this is, this is the, the thing that we, the, that I see, like this happened when I was at a gen pop gym all the time is like the, can I name an acronym name on this one without? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. So the, the gym that I worked at uh, was like FMS heavy. They were like the, mm -hmm. the heaviest, like super, super FMS heavy. And like what I would see with the, with, with, we would have like athlete coaches who would come in and they'd be like, they'd go like super hard for themselves. The programs that I would look at when I was hiring these people, they'd be like, they were, they were good. Like the, the volume was stupid. And like the amount of like the, 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 the programming was just not good, but it would have been a very challenging workout. And then I watch these same coaches go through these FMS certifications. And then I look at their program and it's like 17, it's like, it's like 17 different exercises of like open books, like 30 different variations yeah. of just T-spine rotations. It's like, what happened, man? Like yeah. you used to make these people lift weights. And now like all we do is like, we've just like been like laying on the ground and like singing Kumbaya for 45 minutes. <laughs> and it's like, that's the thing is like, is like, if we can't, and like, uh, that's one of the other, one of the things is like, if it's a population of people that has no issues to begin with, then there's no reason to do any of that stuff. And we can just go ahead and train as normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like, it's, it's exactly like you said, if knowing your population, and if you're coming into a population that's detrained, injured, and, and, and like has a very, very low barrier to fitness, these drills and things like that may be a good exercise and a good stimulus for them because they're so detrained and weak to begin with that they might not be able to do more. Exactly. Yeah. And like, that's the thing is like, I, I made that the, the, so this, this podcast happened because I made a post about arm bars that um, made a lot of people very angry. Um, and I got triggered. <laughs> the, the reason I made it is because I see like, I, I see like big meat monkeys that I train or that I coach or that I know doing like arm bars with like a two pound kettlebell. And it's like, dude, you have a 400 pound bench. What do you think that that two pound arm bar, arm bar is going to mm -hmm. actually do for you? Mm -hmm. like the load is so low that that's not going to do anything. But 
if you are a person or if you're training people that struggle to dumbbell press 10 pounds, that two pound arm bar is like, is like 30% of their max load. And that's going to be a significantly challenging stimulus for that person. Yeah. Right. And like, that's the thing is knowing your population and knowing the people that you, that you're, that you're programming for and coaching is massively important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of powerlifters that are just, you know, relatively high level. They're just totally broken. So I think when it comes to that population, when they're so beat up that they can't have that stimulus, I think the low load stuff, even though it is not driving a huge stimulus relative to what they're capable of, that's where they're at right now. You know what I mean? Right. So the goal is to then get them out of that, use this stuff and then have like what you said, better exercise selection to get them to that end goal. Um, and I think that's something that people could look at my page, for example, and say like, okay, all you're doing is just like, you know, this, this cute little stuff was well, like, no, this is, this is the trend. I work with people to transition them from this broken state into the point where they can do those things. That's the point. Right. Uh, and I think that can get lost in translation quite easily, but ultimately, yeah, it is like the goal is to get them to where they want to be. And right. if we're not thinking about that, then, then we're not, we're doing our clients a disservice in my opinion. And that's the thing that sucks about social media is people look at the, the video and they're like, oh man, that's all this is. Yeah. It's like, well, there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes into this that you don't understand and that you don't actually, you've never actually seen one of my training programs and you've never actually spoken to me before. So why are you making like leaping to this judgment? Exactly. Like, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily a, like, a, like a good thing for us to be doing too, but that's all social media is in general. It's like nobody reads the captions. Yeah. Nobody, nobody reads the captions. People watch, like people swipe through the videos, give it a double tap and move on to the next one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got to have something to differentiate yourself as well. Right. So that is the other end of the spectrum, but there's, there's gotta be a balance there and right. you gotta, it's, it's an attention grabbing game. Um, but ultimately, I mean, what I've learned is that there's so many coaches out there that know this stuff that, you know, like I talk about, or like, you know, really good powerlifting coaches, they're just not talking about it because, you know, like they're out there doing the work and they don't care about social media because they don't need it to drive their business. Right. So there's a lot of people that know this stuff and it's not necessarily new at all. It's just that it's actually getting out there on the internet for the first time. Because a lot of people have the internet now. It's a, it's a crazy just watching the, the, the proliferation of social media over, over time. Cause like I, I'm 30. So like I've had, Insta like I, I got Instagram. I think Instagram came out when I was like, or got started becoming popular when I was like, a sophomore or junior in college at like 22, like 21, 22 years old. And like back then it was just like pictures of food and that's literally it. It was nothing yeah. else. Memes yeah. didn't even exist. Like it was before <laughs> meme culture even started taking over, but now like everybody is on social media and people view social media as real life. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, that's, that's kind of what, what it's, what, like what I view this is, is coming down to is people see, like, uh, like anything on social media, they take that at face value and they immediately think that that is exactly what that person is and how that person operates on every other, on everything else that they do. It's like, well, maybe, but maybe not. Absolutely. Do you know? Yeah. What have you learned through building a business? Cause I'm, I'm assuming a lot, I mean, you have your in-person business for sure, mm -hmm. but you also have your online aspect of things. What things have you learned that's helped you build that business and maintain that balance of like, okay, this is who I am, but also, you know, I need to also sell some stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like, that's, 
it's a, it's tough because what you like the way that you're the way that I have to kind of gear content is again it's gonna the content is gonna be specific to the audience that you attract and like the the stuff that I do may not work for you it won't work for Kyle it might not work for anybody else who's listening to this podcast where it's like my audience knows that I'm an asshole and they come to me because I'm inflammatory and I stay stupid shit and I call people out and I make fun of myself and other people. So like, that's the content that generates and resonates with my audience. And that's the thing is like, if you're looking at building a business, what you have to do is you have to kind of identify your own target Mm -hmm. client and the people that you want to coach. And then you have to direct your content towards those people. And that's how all of it, like all of it comes through is like, what I want to do is like the, the people that I'm looking at coaching, I'm looking at training people who like, care about how they move but want to be strong as hell and they want to be just like savagely strong and that's what i generate my content towards where it's like i make like sometimes i'll post like i'll post prep videos and then sometimes i'll post videos making fun of movement prep and then sometimes i'll post videos of me doing like heavy loaded lifts and then sometimes i'll like post videos of like lightly loaded lifts it's none of it's consistent but the message is the same talking to the people that i want to coach who are people who care about movement and want to be strong yeah right? It's like, that's what it needs to be. It doesn't need to be, there's no secret algorithm to make everybody successful and give you your own business. Because there's, I think the last estimate I saw is there's a couple, there's like, I think there's over a billion people on Instagram now. Are you serious? I think that was the last number that I saw. I don't, I don't want to make that a direct quote. And if I'm getting fact checked for it, this may come up as false as fake news, but I, there's a, there's a ton of people on, on Instagram now. And it's like, there's so many people to choose from that there's enough clients for all of us. Yeah more than enough for all of us. So like, you just, you just have to figure out how to target and how to speak your language and your message to the people that you're looking to attract and then just be consistent over time, which is the funniest thing because I post once every, whenever I feel like it, not very consistently at all. So you buy, you guys be consistent, but I'm not going to be consistent with it. <laughs> I mean, that just feeds into, you know, what your model is, you know, and that's totally okay. Um, yeah. I've found that, you know, the biggest hurdle for me to overcome is uh, just the fact that, you know, you just can't please everyone. And that's unfortunate, but it's also very true. Right. So for me, whenever I'm out there, you know, I am, and it gets the more, you know, the more, the more my, I don't really have a following, but the more I grow, the more it's like, oh man, people come out and they say bad things about you. And that's the part that is hard for people to overcome. And I talk to young coaches all the time. Uh, A lot of young coaches listen to this podcast and they're always struggling with that. But ultimately, you're never going to meet that person in person, probably. And the other thing I'd like to tell people is like, if someone hates you, like what's it going to take for them to really make like an impact on your business? They would have to run a hate smear campaign about you. They would have to hate you that much. And how many people are really going to do that? And if they're doing that, then that makes them look bad. That so makes them look terrible. It doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's the, the biggest thing is like, it's like, a, like I've had people who have, like, I don't have the, the, the biggest following. I have like 5,000 followers on Instagram or whatever it is. And like, I'll get people who I'll, I'll make a post and they'll like comment on something. It's like, I'm unfollowing you. And it's like, oh man. Yeah. But like 0.01% of my follow, I don't know. I don't even know who you are. I've never interacted with you before. Like, that's the thing is like, there are, there's so, there's so little act like, like for, for young coaches who are like getting like a little bit of like imposter syndrome or scared about doing this stuff. They've just got to realize that it doesn't really matter 
Because if you have 300 followers, what's one person out of 330? It's a small percentage. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's such a small percentage. That's like, okay, cool. I lost one person. It's like, all right, well, I've got four followers off of that post. So it's like, I'm up a net three. It doesn't really matter anymore. Mm-hmm. And that one person, like they're probably, they're, they'll probably end up not, they would never end up buying anything from you anyway. So who cares about them? I hear you, man. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Um, I, that was a, that was a tangent. I wanted to get oh, back. For sure. to <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, anyway, I wanted to ask you a couple more things. Sure. About training. So uh, just so everyone's clear, you guys work predominantly with those kinds of people, the people that want to get really strong, uh, but they care about their movement. And you're starting to also target a little bit of power lifters. Um, something I really admire about your programming is really just the way you guys program. Um, so could you guys just give, could you just give a rundown of your program structure? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I've watched one of your webinars before, was really impressed with it. And I think more people need to hear about it. So could you just give an overview of like your general structure of your programming, um, your general model, things like that? Sure, absolutely, yeah. So what we're looking at doing, if I'm looking at training, I'm gonna give the example of a strength athlete because it's gonna be one of the easiest ones that we can talk about. It's the people that I deal with more in terms of a population. But this could be also used for anybody who's looking for hypertrophy or like anybody who's looking to kind of train. It's a, it's a kind of an easy pl- a plug and play model. So what we're looking at doing is the variables that I want to assess and address with a client are gonna be frequency, inten- uh, frequency, volume, and intensity, right? And I wanna go in that order because frequency is gonna be one of the things that's the most progressible to uh, allow for the the best chance of skill mastery. And that's what exercising is. Exercising is mastery of a skill to display the highest output, right? So if we're looking at that, what I wanna do is I wanna look at the frequency of of a training stimulus that I wanna impose on a client first. Let's say it's a knee dominant exercise. I wanna look at training that knee dominant exercise with a hypertrophy volume. So we're looking at accumulating a decent amount of mechanical tension, a decent amount of time under significant tension, which is a thing I got from Kazim Hansen. Um, I have to give him credit. What's the difference between those things in your opinion? Mechanical tension and time under tension. So if we're looking at like like mechan- like the, the way that I'm viewing mechanical tension is gonna be, is gonna be uh, like the, the load uh, that we're actually looking at using in terms of a training session, right? So the actual absolute load on the bar. Um, what I'm looking at with time under tension and this, specifically the concept that I got from, uh, from N1 education of time under significant tension, what we're looking at doing with that is how much time are you under that tension that is actually stimulative, mm-hmm. right? So if we're doing sets of like 30, how many of those reps are going to be actually stimulating progress and how many of those reps are going to be just detracting or like, uh, like adding to total fatigue without yeah. actually driving more adaptation, Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not something that we're saying that like, I would look at doing like one rep maxes on everything because that's going to be the most significant tension or mechanical tension, but the time under tension is extremely short. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is we need to pick loads that are appropriate for the rep scheme that we're doing that allow a high degree of, uh, of mechanical tension to, or time under significant tension to allow for the lifters to reach a point of fatigue or of, of like stimulation through fatigue faster. Right. So it's like if they're doing a set of 15, they might want to be doing a, like a set of 15 with a 15 rep max where they're going to be like they might do like 15, 12, 7 on, a, on, on sets because they're now just reaching a point of stimulating reps faster as yeah. opposed to doing a set of 15 with a 25 rep max. And that first two those first two sets are wasted. Absolutely. I think right, this. So, just, I hate to cut you off right here, yeah. but like this reminds me of the moxie talk um, for people that might care. 
uh, really, according to the Moxie data, at least, when you do, let's say you're doing a set of 10, right? And the load is appropriate for a set of 10. Your first seven-ish reps are just using oxygen. In right. The so you're actually going to start to compress, you know, like if you flex your bicep, unflex it, the blood rushes in, rushes out. That's essentially what's happening for the first seven-ish reps. After that, you actually start to occlude a little bit, which is good if the goal mm -hmm. is hypertrophy. So that lines up perfectly with what you're saying. Right. And like, that's the biggest thing is like, we need to choose load. That's going to be, that's, that's stimulating enough or challenging enough to create that, that stimulation that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to look at, 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 after I've determined the frequency for a lifter and what we can do with this is we can look at training different positions of a muscle. So like we may have, we, like if it's a power lifter, we will, we'll have to have some frequency, right? So we're, we're like, we have to look at where they're going to squat and where they're going to squat most efficiently because of how they're built and what their anthropomorphics are. So if they are a person who has a little bit more of a hingy squat, just because of how they naturally are, we may only squat twice a week, where if they have a little bit more of a vertical torso when they squat because of how they squat, we may squat three-ish times a week, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason why I would do that and choose those frequencies for those people is if we have their, their hingy squat that they're doing twice a week, they still have to deadlift, right? Yeah. So they still have to have that. So we might, we might want to save one of those sessions and remove that and have another deadlift day. So a hingier squat might go Monday, Thursday, and then deadlift on Saturday, whereas a squattier squat might go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then deadlift on Saturday. I love that. Right? Just depending on how the individual lifter is going to move and how they're going to accumulate fatigue over the course of the training period. Yeah. And that's right? so simple, yet that's something not a lot of people are considering. Right. And like, it's one of those things where it's, 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 it should feel obvious, yeah. but it ends up not feeling obvious because like I, in our, in our, in a course that we're, we're running right now, like I talked about physics with a, with a bunch of the, the people in the first course. And there were just so many people that were like, I didn't understand a word you just said. I'm like, this is like literally high school stuff. You, like, we're talking about levers. Like you should understand how these things work. Yeah. And it's like, that's, but that's why it's like, I look at things like that and people are like, well, I didn't really get it that much. It's like, okay, that's, that's a problem. We got to talk about this and address that first. And that's where, where it comes with is where it's like with that hingier squat, we're fatiguing out like paraspinals glutes. And we're basically just creating another hip hinge. So we don't need to do the same volume of hip hinges. You just do better on a better, like having another deadlift day. Right. But again, if we're looking at somebody who's a, like a strength athlete, we don't necessarily like, I don't, even, I don't necessarily want to change that position because that might not be how they might not express optimal movement capacity or optimal output in a new strategy based off of how they're built. Right. So what we would do with that is like the way that I would structure that person is like, if I wanted to give them a little bit more quad, so let's say they squat on Monday and Thursday, I might have them do like a heel elevated safety bar squat with the, with the handles pushed up to push the load forward or a heel elevated high bar squat or a leg press on Friday to give them a little bit more quad stimulation and then give them the, about the, the ability to recover for their deadlift day on Saturday. I take a little bit more aggressive approach with frequency with a lot of accessory movements because I'm trying to train different tissues and different ranges of motion as well. So like if they're training that squat, it's going to be more of a lengthened position of the quads. So I know that they're, they're the shortened position of the quads and like a leg extension is probably not very taxed or fatigued. So we could probably hammer that down the next day or the same day and have a similar degree of output um, over, the, over the, the course of the training week. So I like to take a little bit more of an aggressive approach with frequency and kind of do things a little bit more aggressively than I probably should. Uh, but it seems to be working pretty well for my lifters in terms of fatigue management, because we're able to like hammer down enough different stuff 
that they're not consistently fatiguing out the same tissue over and over and over again. Yeah. And we can actually make some progress towards where we're going. So the, 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 fir the first inter uh, thing that I'm going to look at is frequency of uh, exercise or frequency of pattern that I want to program out. The second thing is going to be the volume that I want to prescribe out because that's going to determine the intensity. So if I go through that kind of arc with that person's programming, I can do a pretty good job of building out a solid program for them based off of their uh, movement, based off of their assessment, based off of whatever it is that I'm looking for to just plug and play exercises on how I see fit, right? With same thing with benching. If they're super wide grip, I know that we're probably not ever training real actual horizontal adduction of a humerus. So we can do different exercises that facilitate that easier and we can still drive a high degree of output with that even after doing benching and uh, like bench pressing and things like that. So we can put those on days that'll complement a bench press and it's not necessarily gonna super tax the bench if they're gonna go bench again the next day. It's like, it's just depending on how the lifter is going to move, where we're going to do to, uh, what we're going to do to determine the frequency of this. Yeah. So basically understand the fiber orientation, what fibers are going to be taxed and then kind of fill in those gaps while right. understanding like what, how much fatigue you're putting on the system. Right. And that's, that's the biggest thing is like just understanding the total fatigue that they're putting on the system. Cause if you have a guy who squats 135 pounds and a guy who squats 735 pounds, those are two very different athletes. And the frequency is going to look different with those people. And the volume is going to look different with those people. Mm -hmm. That guy who squats 135 pounds could probably get away with squatting five, six times a week. That guy who squats 735 pounds can probably get away with squatting once or twice a week. Yeah. yeah. Just because the they become right. Their horsepower is so much higher and they're so much more efficient at recruiting and, and contracting tissue that they just don't need to do as much volume to reach the same stimulating threshold. Yeah. I like the frequency thing too, because there's something to be said for just practicing a movement. Like, you know, you ever like take a, like two weeks off a bench because you're traveling or whatever. Like you come back and you're like, you're, you're doing 10 pounds less for reps. Yeah. It feels terrible. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> I hate that shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it feels terrible. It's just, yeah. It's like, I just need to like practicing the movement more often. You're going to get better at it. And I think people look at, you know, lifts and they're like, that's so, you know, it's like the same thing over and over again, but I, the brain really does need that repetition in order for it to um, the motor pattern to get solidified, which boggles my mind because everybody understands that that is true in all sports <laughs> and except everything <laughs> else except lifting weights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the concept of muscle confusion still exists in gen pop realms when it's like, okay, well, how do you get better at pitching? They're like, well, I'm just going to go pitch like a thousand pitches a day for 20 days. It's like, Cool. So you know that rep repetition is the mother of skill. And they're like, yeah, but not on lifting weights. That's different. It's like, no, it's the same. Yeah, <laughs> Why don't yeah. you understand this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, that's that, God, another tangent, I guess, but um, there's, I think it's easy to get sucked into this sort of echo chamber of, you know, like, you know, there's this little corner of social media that talks about systems a lot. And I think it's easy to think that this stuff is more, um, it's, it's more common than it really is. I mean, you just go into any big box gym and you just see this stuff absolutely everywhere. Just yeah. like things that would make you want to throw up in your mouth when you look at it. And it's just like this, most people still don't have a clue. Most yeah. people like know absolutely nothing. Like I'll, I'll talk to a, a general client. I'm like, you know, the, who, who's been following my page for a while. I'll just like, you know, like this, just assuming they have a slight inclination of what I'm talking about. They just don't. Nope. That's another thing I've <laughs> had to learn. Yeah. That's another thing I've had to learn is like, I need to, you know, really educate this person on what's going on. I need to yeah. do it in a way that they understand or else I'm going to lose them really quick. Right. 
And that's, that's another thing about speaking to your audience, right? And like, that's, that's, if you look at the content that Kyle puts out, mm-hmm. Kyle speaks to coaches. Yes. So when other coaches start to try to replicate Kyle's posts and how Kyle ta- like, like types, but their population is like gen pop accountants, they are losing them entirely because there's yeah. just a communication style mismatch. And it's not, it's like you said, it's like, we still, our goal is to still educate these people on the right things that they're doing. But as a coach, we have to reduce the barrier to entry and pick better verbiage that allows people to understand that like none of this stuff, stuff is scary. Cause it's like, I I've been coaching for 10, like I've been coaching for like, like eight, like six, seven years at the time before I'd ever heard the term nutation. And I was like, I didn't know what this, I didn't even know this yeah. was a thing. Like, I had a, like when I went to the, the seminar that I went to with it, like one of my friends who came with me is, is four is like, I think she just, she just turned 40 at the time and she'd been coaching since she was 18 and she had never, she's a master's in exercise physiology. And she's like, I, this is a word I didn't even know existed. Wow. And it's like, I did, I haven't heard this one before. And it's like, that's, that's a scary thing because like, but we also lived in the gen pop realm where it's like, just like tuck, squeeze your butt. And like, that's all we're talking about with it, where the, the terms end up being the same thing, but the actions are different. And I think that's one of the things that happens with a lot of different courses is you look at how the presenter presents information to you and you like you, meaning you as an educated coach, and then you take that information and then regurgitate it to somebody else. And it's like, you're just now scaring that person and they don't know and they're confused even more because they don't know what any of that stuff even means or why it matters. So I think that's one of the things that we have to do as coaches is learn how to make our verbiage easier for them to understand so that we can meet them where they are and then then begin the process of elevating their educational standard. Absolutely. Yeah, there's like a there's a little part of me when I, you know, type leg bone to one of my clients that like, it's oh, like, my like ego, die inside. Like, <laughs> yeah, my ego is like, ah, you know, yeah. but, but it's important to do that to like bring it that low, like your leg bone or, yeah. you know, your, your um, big, you know, like your big toe, whatever, just like things like that. Right. Um, but anyway, tangent aside, I just wanted to kind of wrap things up by asking you, because we talked about accessory exercises, we talked yep. about your program a little bit. Um, what is your general progression scheme? Like when you look at a program from like a top down view, like a bird's eye view, what are you looking to do to progress these? For example, let's stick with accessory lifts. Cause I think that's something that most people mm-hmm. have a large interest in. Uh, what are you going to do to progress them? When are you going to progress them? And what are some of the variables you're looking for? So what we're going to do and what I do with it, with, uh, with, with lifting is my lifting approach and my programming approach is super boring, um, uh, because we keep things very consistent and we, we keep movements very consistent. And I regulate things based off of intensity and volume after we've determined things that are going to work. Right. And this is the thing is like, what we can do is we can change stimulus up enough by changing the intensity, the volume or the, or the, uh, the intensity of the volume of the actual exercise that the, it becomes a totally different stimulus, right? And so we can change tempo, we can make it heavier, we can drop the reps, we can increase sets, we can do so many different things to hit the, to keep the same stimulus effective and just change it entirely by changing up the the like one of these variables that you can keep the same movement and then just turn it into a totally different thing, right? Mm-hmm. So my programming ends up being a little bit more boring with these people, with with all my clients, because once we find something that works, I'm not going to leave it for a, any arbitrary reason. Like it's, it's the same thing we talked about with muscle confusion. It's like, 
well, I did that one for four weeks. So it's over now. Right. It's like, no, it's still working. Like, let's keep going. Let's we'll do it for a year. If it puts pounds on your squad, I don't care. Yeah. Um, so when I look at this, when I look at building out a training program, uh, most of my thing is it's depending on how far we are out from a competition. So if we're relatively far out from a competition, the competition specific movements, I put into more of a hypertrophy style, a hypertrophy bucket. And the way that I'm going to drive hypertrophy with my competition exercises, particularly for lifters is we're going to do that through total volume through total sets. Mm. Right. So I'm not looking at like, like, for example, I just find that like through any, like any kind of anecdotal training that are evidence that I have from all the people, the, the people that I've coached and trained things like squatting, benching and deadlifting never really lend themselves very well to like 15 rep sets for max strength. That just doesn't carry over very well. Right. So if I'm still looking to hit a total number of reps for hypertrophy. What I'm going to do is break that down to the, so allow that stimulus to be heavier and increase the sets. Right. So it's like, we might do like seven sets of six with like a fatigue cap at RPE nine, where it's like your last set is RPE nine. And like, however many sets it took you to get to that point, that's good. Mm -hmm. Right. So we might do something where it's like, you have a a set range that stops and there's a certain, there's a, there's a definite end point where it's like, when you feel like you got like two reps left in the tank, we're done. We're not doing any more. And then we move on to other stimulus. Right. So I like to do that in terms of progressing through uh, intensity with, uh, power lifters because that's a little bit more specific for them and keeping the rep range a little bit lower and the total volume via sets higher. Um, and then everything else is going to be a little bit more hypertrophy and bodybuilding style with tempos thrown in. Um, so I'm a big fan of tempo training because temp- with tempo, you can kind of change the the tissue orientation that you're training. Cause if you just have an exaggerated eccentric tempo, you can train the lengthening position and the yielding position of the muscle. If you have a pause, you can train the mid range. You can just do a lot of different cool stuff with tempo so we'll keep those a little bit higher rep and a little bit um, lower volume and try to get that through like incomplete rest and quality mechanical tension over time. So it's like you might do a two by 15 leg press with a 45 to 50 second rest in between to really kind of work on just building up a little bit more occlusion in the quads and actually driving a little bit more output and hopefully hypertrophy in the tissue. Mm-hmm. Like, can so, you give an example of when you would use a tempo lift versus, um, for example, using another means, just like your classic set rep scheme to drive yeah. the stimulus you're looking for? Right. So, so it depends on what we're looking for and what tissue we're looking to train. Right. So, if we're looking at um, the the example that I would give is like if we're if we're squatting, if we have somebody who's, who's who's squatting and they're very poor at controlling range of motion in the in the hole, we would do a tempo pause, right, where they they have to slowly lower down into the hole and then pause for like a two to three count uh, tempo before reversing motion and standing up to build up a little bit more integrity in that position, right? Mm-hmm. So that's just one of those things where based off of the assessment that you see with the lifter, you can choose the tempo that's best going to suit where what they do and where they kind of fault, right, like. Mm-hmm. For example, a lot of powerlifters who, who deadlift uh, will kind of fault around the knees and they'll either start shaking or they'll, their position will start to break down around the knees. So we do like a halting deadlift where they pull off the ground, pause at the knees, and then stand up again. Nice. So we can just build up a little bit more time under tension in the specific area where they suck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I really like also what you said about using high amounts of sets, more intensity to drive that hypertrophy. Have you ever seen Jake Turo's program? Yes. It's yeah, it's like yeah, that's no idea, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So for people who don't know, it's like you go eight by five, then I believe you go ten by four, and then yeah. twelve or eleven by three. Yeah. And um, I've been running it. I love it. It's so much fun because it keeps right. things moving too. So you take a sixty second rest, you get back in it, 
And, you know, the first, you know, five sets aren't that bad, but once you get to the last couple, it's, it's pretty brutal. They're tough. But yes. You're able to do way more intensity, still accumulate that volume and it keeps things moving in the gym. So I encourage people to take a look at that. Right. And that's the thing is like this, the total number of reps is the same, but the total output is significantly higher because you can use more load. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Matt, Hey man, I just wanted to say, thanks for coming on, man. This was, I enjoyed this a lot. So I appreciate you having me on, man. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. All right.